Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, so we're in episode five now of the John series, and uh, we're going to look at different themes as last time we looked at the theme of the spirit. Now let's look at uh, some other themes, what's happening with temple and Passover and tabernacles and other other aspects of the uh, the book that we're going to see. So in the heart of the Gospel of John, Jesus really seems to be constantly at a different event, a different festival, a different feast. Why is he doing this? Yeah, so we mentioned already that John's Gospel places most of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. And the reason why John does that is because he wants to portray Jesus as this fulfillment of the major Jewish festivals. And so Jesus is in town, the festival of Passover, or the festival of tabernacles, and, other. and that also includes, by the way, Sabbath. You know, we don't think of Sabbath as a festival, but it's a mm-hmm. weekly festival for the Jewish mm-hmm. people. So in John chapter five, Jesus is at the Sabbath. And in many ways, the Sabbath is kind of the preeminent feast in Israel because it's a weekly feast. And the issue in Judaism had come to the forefront, and that is what's permitted on the Sabbath. And we talked about this a little bit in our Warren Carter interview a couple months, about a month or so ago. You know, what's permitted on the Sabbath? The Jewish law simply says, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath day. And that just raises the question like, well, what does work mean? And we kind of, again, we got to be careful. We kind of look down upon the Pharisees and the, uh, all their legalism and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. But that is not the way they would have been thought about at that point in time. And the way they thought of what they were trying to do at that point in time. Their answer was, look, this law was written 1500 years ago or 1300 years ago. Mm-hmm. So the Pharisees then had said, okay, what is it that actually constitutes work? And they actually came up with 39 categories of, of Sabbath violations in terms of this is working of you know, tilling the soil. So if you spit on the Sabbath day, it's tilling the soil. And again, their attitude was, we want to make sure that we protect mm-hmm. the Sabbath and the laws and the covenant with God, but we're protecting you also from violating it. So that if you do violate it, you know that you violate it and you come forward for sacrifices and forgiveness and offerings and the things that you need to do for forgiveness. So nonetheless, the Pharisees had all these regulations now. So Jesus, of course, heals a man on the Sabbath day. And then they begin to complain, you know, what are you doing on the Sabbath day? And John chapter five, verse 17, he says, you know what, guys, here's the deal. I'm only doing what my father does, which is really problematic Mm -hmm. because A, he's saying, well, the father's working on the Sabbath day, which is not a problem because it was widely believed that the father was indeed working on the Sabbath day. After all, creation doesn't like cease to exist on the Sabbath day. God continues to work on the Sabbath. He's sustaining creation. He gives life on the Sabbath day. You know, babies are born on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is like, hey, since God works on the Sabbath day, I'm not violating it either. I'm I'm working on the Sabbath day because I'm just doing what my father does. You're calling yourself equal with God. This is is blasphemous. But in Jesus's mind, the Sabbath is what God has done and created and established. And I'm walking, fulfilling it, just doing what my father did. And the idea is now is that the Sabbath was meant to do justice and to stop injustice. And if healing a person brings about justice, because after all, the guy can go to work now where he couldn't work before, then I'm doing it on the Sabbath day. I don't, that's, this is fine. My father does that also. All right. So let's move to chapter six. Jesus multiplies the bread and he feeds, feeds 5,000 this is the only miracle aside from the resurrection that is in all four gospels. And we talked about how John wrote to 
you know, supplement what was happening in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the synoptics. So if all three of these gospels have it, why would John repeat it? Yeah, it's interesting. And by the way, the resurrection is kind of in all four gospels, but maybe not actually in Mark. It's kind of implied mm-hmm. in Mark's gospel, but nonetheless. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. This is the only miracle in all four gospels. And John's readers already know about this one. Well, one of the things that's happening is this. First off, John wants to show Jesus as the fulfillment of the Passover. And Jesus is the bread of life. And so what better way to inaugurate a discussion of, of the Passover and its fulfillment in Jesus than by telling you about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus himself says that I'm the bread that comes down out of heaven, reminding the readers of the, the manna that fed the Israelites back in the Old Testament. The reason why John told the story was probably number one, because he wanted to associate Jesus as the fulfillment of the Passover. And the best way to do that would be to say he multiplies the bread and he is the bread of life. The second thing actually is that Mark's gospel, Jesus kind of leaves quickly. They get into a boat and they, they kind of quickly hurry to the other side. And we don't know why. And, and it seems that John's gospel is writing in part to answer questions that were raised by Mark's gospel. So Mark's mm. gospel is out there. That's, you know, why did they get in a boat and hurry away so quickly? This, I mean, he's being well received. This is good news. What's going on? And so and John's readers, of course, you know, 60 years later, they don't have anybody else to go back to. They're like, hey, John, what's going on? And John tells us that in verse 14 and 15, they tried to make him king by force. Mm. You're clearly better than even Moses was. And Jesus is like, you know what? Uh, that's not going to happen. This is not the way I'm going to become king. And so he leaves quickly. So it's possible that John's also telling us the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in order to explain why he had to leave quickly because they're trying to make him king by force. Okay. Jesus in chapter six gives a speech, kind of gets weird. Uh, yeah. and, and even in the early church, there was misnomers about uh, what Christians did. But uh, in, in chapter six, verse 51, it says uh, that he is the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. In verse 53, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Like this has been, uh, you know, an issue, uh, you know, like I said, the Romans thought Christians were cannibals in the, you know, in the first century, even today you have denominational issues in terms of how, uh, if, if we're looking at this as a foreshadowing of something like celebrating communion or the Eucharist, whatever we might call yeah. that, you know, between a, a Roman Catholic, a Lutheran and a, just another, maybe we'll just call it a Reformed, common yeah, uh, yeah a pro- Protestant view that this is either something that is literally Jesus's blood. It's spiritually Jesus's blood, or it's just sim- symbolizing Jesus's body and blood. So what do we do with this? You can just see Jesus sitting up in heaven going, you guys can't even get that one right, can yeah. you? Right? <laughs> oh my goodness, that's mm-hmm. where we start, and I can't even get out the door. So in John 4, Jesus offers the one with the well, the gift of water that would become a well of water springing up to eternal life. And now in John 6, he offers the bread of life that also gives eternal life. And so there's living water, which is the Holy Spirit, and it's given by Jesus. And now the bread of life is Jesus, and it's given by the Father. You see that pattern? The water is given by Jesus, and it's the Holy Spirit, and the bread is Jesus, and it's given by the Father. So, of course, the question becomes, you know, where else in the Bible do we see something that if it's eaten, you get eternal life? And, of course, the answer is the garden, right? The tree of life. Mm -hmm. So I think Jesus is indicating that he is that tree of life. He says in chapter 15, I am the vine. And, of course, Jesus is the river of life, or obviously it's the Holy Spirit, ultimately, that's the the river of life. So these two passages kind of... We, we kind of often deal with them like as an, as an either or frame of mind, you know, either you eat the body literally and drink his blood literally, or he's speaking metaphorically, as you mentioned already, 
I think ultimately Jesus is simply saying, look, you got to believe in me. This is the whole point. This, I am what this has been pointing to all along. The bread of life, the river of life, it's all along been pointing to me. I am the tree of life and you're the branches. And if you believe, this is great good news. Okay, so then this leads into the the demonic section because it's 666. Yeah. Your birthday. Uh, so birth six month. of 66, right? So, yeah, birth month. Yeah, birth month. So yeah. the disciples start to grumble, which you have to think like even that the use of that term, is that John referring back to uh, the yeah. wilderness with the, the people numbers, grumbling? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Chapter six, verse 66 says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And then we, I mentioned this to you briefly before, I believe and that is, we have to be, bear in mind that the word disciples in the gospel of John doesn't always have in mind the 12 or a smaller mm-hmm. group of people that are truly dedicated to Jesus. There's a large, wider group of people that were following Jesus that were just simply called disciples. Mm-hmm. And they were following Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes up with this hard teaching. And they're like, this is a hard teaching. Like, you know, who, who can believe this? And then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, hey, you know, do you guys want to leave also? And Peter says in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? Give the words of eternal life, which indicates, you know, Peter and the disciples weren't simply following Jesus because of the signs. Remember in chapter two, he, he turned water into, into wine and, and these signs revealed his glory. But then we find people that are seemingly only believing because of the signs. Mm-hmm. And now Peter comes along and says, no, Lord, we believe because of who you are. Mm. You have the words of eternal life. Mm. So, yeah. Okay. We get into chapter seven and eight, and these events take place during the Feast of Tabernacles, or you could call it Feast of Booths. Mm-hmm. So should we presume that John is portraying Jesus as the fulfillment of this feast? And uh, w- what is this feast? You know, how does Jesus fulfill it? And I would even say, like, these are feasts that necessarily aren't known to a, a modern yeah. reader. Some of these are things that are extra biblical, I- intertestamental, just as if we were to put a pause right here, yeah. because we're going to be talking about a lot of these things. How might I go learn about some of these things if, if these are kind of new to me? Um, well, listen to the Determined Truth podcast. <laughs> nice. right? Yeah. Um, if you're not already, and if you're not already, listen to the, the Determined Truth like podcast. And subscribe. And, <laughs> okay. like. But yeah, you can find um, a good Bible dictionary. Mm-hmm. That'd be a good place to go. You had mentioned Gary Burge's commentary, which I think he talks about that, sure. but he even put a little booklet out on Jesus and the Jewish feasts. Yeah. So if that's still in print, that would be a good resource Yeah, that's, uh, that's to true. go yeah. through. Yeah. I hesitate to telling people to buy, 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 yeah, buy, yeah. buy. Uh, so usually what I recommend for people, like the average Christian that's wanting to study the Bible is like, okay, get a good Bible dictionary, like the Baker Exegetical Bible Dictionary or the Baker mm-hmm. Illustrated Bible Dictionary or the IVP uh, dictionaries, mm-hmm. IVP has like a multiple set, but yeah. you can find that all in one volume yeah. and they're a thousand pages or more. They're going to have a lot of entries in there, like Pharisees, Sadducees, mm-hmm. but they're also going to have like Saul and who, what's Gibeah and what are these place names, foods, uh, locations, people. We, we call them Bible dictionaries, but they really function kind of like encyclopedias yeah. where there's articles in alphabetical yeah. order on numerous things. Yeah. So it's one of the few resources that I would encourage people to buy if you want to do mm-hmm. any studying at all of the Bible. But you would just look up Tabernacles, Feast of, and we'll give you a lot of information. Let me kind of go back even to cover Passover for a second. So Passover commemorates the Israelites leaving from Egypt after the Egyptians were killing the firstborn Israelites and mm-hmm. doing all these things. God brings 10 plagues upon the, Egypt, upon the Egyptians, the last which is the killing of the firstborn in Egypt. 
The Israelites are told they put blood on the doorpost and the angel of death will pass over their house. And that's the idea of Passover. If the, the faithful Israelites who put the blood on their doorpost, they're supposed to eat this meal in a haste. So they can't let the bread rise. They eat unleavened bread. And then they go off into the wilderness. And then in the wilderness, they have manna. And that's the bread that comes down from heaven every day. So they, the Passover is commemorated annually to rem remember their exodus from Egypt and that they were to eat unleavened bread because it symbolized the haste with which they had to get out of Egypt. Once Pharaoh said, hey, you know what? You can go. Hey, let's get out quickly before he changes his mind. Mm -hmm. right, now, Jesus comes along and says, hey, look, all along, the bread that comes down out of heaven, the manna, is me. I'm the fulfillment of this. And of course, the Gospel of John begins with, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist says that. So we're pointing all along that Jesus says that lamb that was sacrificed on the Passover, and then you would put that, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost over, over your homes, and the, the angel of death would pass over. The Feast of Tabernacles occurs then in the fall. So if Passover occurs in the spring, and it does, Tabernacles occurs in the fall. And, and there's three major festivals in the Jewish world that you, there's seven festivals, but there's three major ones that all Jews were supposed to attend Jerusalem for. And they often didn't attend Jerusalem for all three of them, especially if they live a distance away in Rome or you know, maybe in Corinth or things like that. They might come for one of the three, the Passover, the Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So Passover is, you know, March, April, and our calendar goes. Pentecost is 50 days later, so uh, May, early June. And then uh, Tabernacles is in the fall, September, somewhere around September, October. And oftentimes, because the harvest and the work is finished at Tabernacles, it's easier to come for Tabernacles. Secondly, it's harder to travel in Pentecost at Passover because it might still be muddy and the roads, the rainy season could still be going on. And you got to get the crops planted. You got to get everything done. So it was more pragmatic or practical to bring the family or if you came during the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Tabernacles commemorates the Israelites' exodus from Egypt and from the slavery in Egypt and their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And what happens is as during the time in the wilderness, they lived in tents. And so during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, the Israelites put tents up. That's why being a tent maker would be a good occupation because the Israelites need to have this. They live in a tent for during the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also associated with the gathering of the, of the fall harvest, the grapes and all of us harvest, especially. So the harvest that deals with trees and vines. But most significantly, the Feast of Tabernacles was associated with the formation of the nation of Israel. And this is important because it makes it a political event. Mm -hmm. When you're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, you're identifying yourself as an independent entity in the middle of the Roman-occupied world. And so when Jesus comes along and says, you know what, I'm the source of tabernacles, what's been pointing to me all along, he's announcing a revolution. I mean, this is, there's nothing other than the fact that he's saying, this feast is fulfilled in me, was pointing to me all along, and therefore, the new Israel's at hand. Mm. So Feast of Tabernacles, I mentioned, it's one of the three feasts that they would come to. But so during the feast... And I wish, I actually should have brought it up for just for you, your sake, Vinny. I don't know if you've seen a picture of it, but there's these massive menorahs that are put in the courtyard of the women. Mm -hmm. So there's, when you enter into the gates, into the temple, the first place you enter in is at the court of women. And in the four corners of this area of the court of women were these massive menorahs that you had to have a ladder to climb up to light. Because they stood up over the top of the wall of the inner courtyard, the light shone over the whole city. Now, remember, in the ancient world, the only light you have at night is maybe moonlight, depending on whether it's a, dark, a full moon or, or, or not. So the fact that these lights are lit every night during this Feast of Tabernacles, the whole city's illuminated. So the first thing you have to associate with the Feast of Tabernacles is light, this mm -hmm. lighting ceremony 
and it lights up the city of Jerusalem. And this is like, this is awesome stuff. I mean, just to put it like a modern day perspective, um, it's like when I was a kid, nowadays it's like seems like everyone has fireworks and you hear them mm. all the time for everything. Yeah. But back when I was a kid, like you only had fireworks on 4th of July. Mm -hmm. It was a huge deal to have fireworks. You were so excited. You don't want to miss that one event. Th this event is going to be similar to like that, where yeah. you don't just turn on lights at nighttime. When it gets dark, you are done. You got to plan your day out. You got to get home. You got to figure all this stuff out. You're, you're judging everything by light. This is a huge deal to have light at night and to illuminate it like this. This is, this is one of the things that you just really cherish. Yeah, very much so. So during the feast also, however, though, another significant element was there's these dancing in the courtyards, the massive lights are lit. And then there's also a processional during the day led by the high priest. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine this, if you're going south from the temple complex, you're going downhill. Now, this is the city of David. If you're, like, if, if you're familiar with this at all, if you have a Bible map in the map of your, back of your Bibles, you might look it up. It's a little finger. It's a small little area. It's called the city of David. And if you think about it, David's at the top. And then the temple's above him. And Bathsheba's like one house below, which means he ain't climbing on a ladder to look at Bathsheba. He's just looking over the wall because mm -hmm. she's below him. Well, at the bottom of that hill, I think it's about 600 feet below, is the Pool of Siloam. So there's a big processional led by the high priest. And they go down to the Pool of Siloam. And they gather water from the Pool of Siloam. And they're bringing the water back up to the temple. Because remember, all the sacrifices that happen up in the temple, you need water constantly to be washing things. Mm -hmm. So water has a heavy symbolic significance of cleansing and purifying. Well, while they're processing themselves up, the congregation singing what are called the Hallel Psalms, mm -hmm. uh, Hallel for hallelujah or, or praise the Lord. So Psalms 113 to 118 are being sung. And the singing, of course, climaxes in chapter 118, verse 25, where it says, Oh Lord, save us. Oh Lord, grant us success. Now, the significance, however, is this. The Jews can't say, oh, Lord, because mm -hmm. that's Yahweh. Mm -hmm. So they would substitute for Yahweh the Aramaic anihu. Now, anihu just means like I am. So if you're familiar with the word, oh, Lord, Lord can be a noun, as it, and it can signify a title, the eternal one, the, the one who is. But Lord also can be a verb. The, the, the letters of the word Lord can be a, a verb, meaning I am. So when God says to Moses, I am that I am, he's using the same letters in Exodus 3.14 that he uses in the word, Exodus 3.15, my name is the Lord. So they can't say the Lord part. So they use the, the I am part. So anihu, save us. Anihu, grant us success. So now during this feast, this is the context, the massive lighting ceremony, the processional of water, the singing of the Hallels or marching up into the, to the Temple Mount. All this is going on daily in the field. It's just a phenomenal experience. And Jesus then encounters the, the authorities in dialogue now. And he says, you know what? I was sent by my father. And what's interesting is they're still angry from chapter five when he healed mm -hmm. the man on the Sabbath day. But by now in chapter seven, some are starting to wonder, hey, is Jesus really, maybe he is the Christ. Maybe he is the Messiah. And they're like, you know what? In verse 27, they says, you know, we know where Jesus is from, but the Messiah, no one knows where he comes from. And of course, John's readers are like, uh, you don't really know where he comes from because he comes from the Father. Hmm. So it's an example of Johannine irony. But nonetheless, uh, John chapter 7, verse 37, that's the passage that we, that we read earlier, says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, John 7, verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, there's a little bit of dispute here. The Feast of Tabernacles is a seven-day feast, and it appears that they added an eighth day on. Like, why not? Who needs another day off? Uh, actually, poor peasants can't afford another day off, though. Yeah. 
they they may have added another eighth day by by this point in time, or this may be the seventh day, but either way, it's the last day and the greatest day of the feast. And Jesus says in verse 37, if any man's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Well, they got this water from the pool of Siloam being marshaled to the temple. And Jesus says, he who believes in me, scripture said from innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit. Now, also, let me skip down here. They're saying, oh, Lord, grant us success. Oh, oh Lord, save us. And Jesus' answer is, I'm the Lord. If you want salvation, and if you're thirsty, come to me, and you can drink. And by Which is going to be the spirit. When this is going to be ironic anyway, because you have all these people who have been at this feast. It's not like you could just go down to the the vendor cart and buy a you know bottle of Aquafina. It's it's the end of the fall. It's hot and dusty. It's not the rainy season. Like these are people who are actually probably literally thirsting anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so Jesus is meeting their needs saying, I, I have this need. Yeah, you're thirsty, but I have actually something that's going to fulfill you even more than just water. That's right. That's right. And add to that now, this is the two occurrences where Jesus says, and I am the light of the world. Mm-hmm. When Jerusalem's lit up, Jerusalem's the light of the world. And Jesus is like, you know what, guys? If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Mm. And I'm the light of the world. You're like, what? What's going on? He's announcing the fulfillment of tabernacles by taking the events of the tabernacles and then ascribing them to himself. I'm the light of the world. And I'm the source of living water. Not the pool of Siloam, but me. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. Now, the significance of all this really heightens. Okay, so we go forward in the Gospel of John, and Jesus is on the cross, and you know the Romans were required in, in Jerusalem to take the bodies down before nightfall because of the curse of Deuteronomy, and the Jewish authorities had gone to, the, gone to Rome and said, you know what, you can't leave these guys up here overnight. Okay, great, let's go break these guys' legs so that they die quickly. Mm-hmm. They get to Jesus, and he's, not, and he's already dead. I'm like, well, maybe he's faking it. We got to get him off the cross, and they pierce his side, and John's Gospel is really clear. Blood and water pour out. It's like, well, what's the significance of water? Now, when I was young, I was like, oh, you know, water is a sign that he's died, had a heart attack. Yeah, yeah. And the periocardial fluid around his heart is bursting. Okay, and maybe that's true. But, but that's in John's, not John's gospel. Point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In John's gospel, water has been significant from chapter mm-hmm. two. Sorry, woman, it's not my hour yet. All right, I'll do it. Turn the water into wine. Hey, Nicodemus, uh, water in the spirit. Hey, woman of the well, you know, you should have asked me and I give you living water. Mm-hmm. And John 7, he spoke to us of the spirit whom he had not yet given. So when blood and water come out of his side, you're like, well, ah, something's going on here. And what's happening is Ezekiel 40 through 48 is being fulfilled. Mm. Okay, now this is so significant. And it's going to lead into our study of the book of Revelation later on, which we're going to get to in like a year, but we'll get there sooner or <laughs> later. Understand John and water and the whole theme. So Ezekiel 40 through 48, these nine chapters. Now, we already noted in chapter 36, I'm going to give you my, my spirit. I'm going to make you a new creature. I'm going to give you a new heart. And you're going to obey my commandments. And it's going to be like Eden. Mm-hmm. John 37, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. Mm-hmm. Can these bones live? Yes, they can. The resurrection happens in Jesus and resurrecting of these, of these dry bones. 
And Ezekiel 37, it says, can these bones live? Well, you know what? He breathed on them and they became living beings. Well, Jesus breathes on his disciples and they become living beings. So John has Jesus quoting uh, Genesis chapter two, that the father gave him the spirit and they became living beings. But it's also referencing Ezekiel 37 and the value of dry bones, Israel coming back into life. Right, now you get to chapters 40 through 48. And these nine chapters are basically stories uh, of Israel's restoration in the context of, now remember when Israel was sent into exile during the time of, time of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says that not only is he in Babylon, so Ezekiel chapter one takes place with Ezekiel being in Babylon. I'm by the river Shabar and the spirit met me, meaning God left Jerusalem also and was in Babylon. So Ezekiel said, okay, there's gonna be a day when not only are we gonna come back and be reconstituted as a people, but the spirit's gonna come back and dwell amongst his people again. <clears throat> now the temple had been destroyed though. So Ezekiel 43:48 describes the reconstitution of God's people in terms of a temple that's a city that's actually a people. So a temple city makes sense. But it's also a people. You're like, well, how can a city and a temple be a people? Easy, folks. Jesus is the temple. So a temple clearly is a people. Now, if you go to the book of Revelation, the bride is the new Jerusalem. So Revelation 21, 9 and following. Let me show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit. And I saw the holy city. So city and people are certainly used throughout scripture. And temple and people are certainly used throughout people. And if you look at the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem is a temple. Mm -hmm. In fact, the dimensions of the New Jerusalem are only the Holy of Holies. It has the same length, width, and height, which is the a perfect cube, and it's the shape of the Holy of Holies. Well, Ezekiel is doing the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. So let's look very briefly here at a little bit of this. If you have your Bibles, I totally recommend that you stop your car, pull off the side of the road, and open up Ezekiel chapter 40 on your phone. And don't do it while you're driving. Chapter 40. Ezekiel says, you know, in my exile, in the uh, 25th year of our exile, this is verse one, at the beginning of the year, in the 10th of the month, the 14th day, 14th year after the city was taken, on the same day, the Lord handled what was upon me, and he brought me there. And the visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel. He set me on a very high mountain. And on the south, there was a structure like a city, and he brought me there. There was a man, his appearance was like a bronze with a linen flax and a measuring rod. Uh, and a measuring rod is a sign of a prophetic instrument. It's, a, it's what a prophet uses to measure something to signify that which is divinely being protected. So the man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I'm going to show you, for you've been brought here in order to show it and declare to the house of Israel all that you see. And then he goes on to clearly describe a temple. But he said that he saw a city. So it's a city that's like a temple. All right, now we're going to skip down because you have all these chapters describing the measurements of the temple to chapter 47. And you're going to see why this re relates to the gospel of John here and what we're talking about. Chapter 47. He says, he brought me, verse one, to the door of the house. Now the house, of course, is the temple. And behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. So we now know it's a temple because the temples always face east. So the water's coming out of the house towards the east. For the house faces east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the far right side of the house, from the south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate, and he led me around to the outside of the outer gate, by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. So it's just a little bit of water coming out. Verse 3, when the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, the, you know, the measuring line, he measured a thousand cubits, and a cubit's a foot and a half, approximately, right? 
and it led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Now immediately you're thinking, okay, this is impossible. Of course, it's prophetic literature, so you might not be thinking this, but water can't get deeper unless you have water being added to it. You have to have tributaries. But this water is coming from the temple. So I really doubt that water is being added to it because it would obviously it's holy water if it's coming from the temple and water outside the temple would defile it. Mm -hmm. This is holy water. We're going to see that it is indeed holy water, but it's getting deeper. Verse four, again, he measured a thousand and he led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again, he measured a thousand. And it was a river that I could not ford for the water had risen enough water to swim in a, a river that could not be forden, afforded. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen all this? And he brought me back to the bank of the river, verse seven. Now, I, when I returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and on the other. Now, remember Ezekiel 36, the coming of the spirit was described as being like Eden. So as soon as you see trees and a river, you're thinking this is Eden because it was a river in Genesis 2, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, I think it is, that flowed out of Eden and that river waters the earth and there's a tree of life in the middle of Eden. So there's all these trees, it says in verse seven. In verse eight, he says, he said to me, these waters go out toward the Eastern region and they go down into the Arabah. And Arabah is just like, it's a Hebrew word that's not translated here. It, it's just, it means the desert. So it says, they go toward the sea, being made flow, to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. All right, now let's stop for a second. If you're in Jerusalem and the river flows to the west, it's going to go to the Mediterranean Sea. Mm -hmm. But this river is flowing to the east. Now there's one hill you have to go over, the Mount of Olives. And after you go over the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, you go straight downhill for 17 miles until you get to the Dead Sea Valley. And this is where it's going. This water's going to the east and it makes the water, the sea becomes fresh. Now, uh, you haven't been to Jerusalem yet, have you? No. So if you ever go, if any, any listeners have ever been on a trip to the Holy Land and you get this excursion that sometimes they let you take, you go to the Dead Sea and you go swimming. Well, you don't swim, you float. Mm -hmm. By the way, you don't swim, you float. And it's always recommended that you keep one hand out of the water dry, because if you get any water splashed in your eyes, it will sting like nothing else. Mm. Women are encouraged, don't shave the day before, and men don't shave, because if you get It'll any sting. of this water, it stings like, mm. it's like nasty. I understand that there's 37% salt content. Now, the salt river has 6% salt content, so there's a comparison. You cannot sink, you automatically float. In fact, if you're standing upright in the, in the Sea of Galilee, I'm sorry, in the Dead Sea, it's really hard to keep your feet underneath you because your feet just want to pop up. Hmm. But, you know, you're like, you don't want to sit on your back because then your face, you know, it's facing the sun. You want to sit upright. And so you got to like get your feet underneath you and it's really hard to balance them underneath you. This is the Dead Sea. It's dead. There's nothing living in it. It's not just the Dead Sea where like where most everything's dead, like everything is dead. But all of a sudden now, the water from the threshold of the temple that got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper as it left the temple goes all the way to the Dead Sea and the sea becomes fresh. Hmm. And here's what it says in verse uh, nine. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. Hmm. There'll be many fish for these waters will go there and others become fresh so that everything will live where the water goes. It'll come about that there'll be fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Enagheim. Now, Engedi used to be on the, on the shore of the Dead Sea. And it's now like half a mile inland because of evaporation. 
because the Jordan River doesn't empty into the Dead Sea any longer. It's, it's kind of horrible there. But nonetheless, these are places that, that were on the shore of the, sea, of the Dead Sea at the time. So there's going to be fishermen there. Mm-hmm. And it says they're going to, the fish will be according to their kinds, which is Genesis language. Mm-hmm. Like the fish of the Great Sea, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh, for they'll be left for salt. Now, by the river on its bank, this is verse 12, on one side and on the other will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They'll bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary Mm. and their fruit will be food and their leaves for healing. Now, the book of Revelation says he saw the river of the water of life coming from the throne of God and from the lamb. And on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit and yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's clearly this same passage. So in Revelation 21, 22, it's the tree of life. We know we have Eden imagery here because it's according to many kinds and trees and a river. So this is the tree of life. And the tree of life is watered by a river that comes from the sanctuary. But Jesus said, I'm the temple of God. Mm-hmm. So when they pierced him and water comes out of his side, it's the water of Ezekiel 47. This is unquestionably, there's no question, and it's especially true for the book of Revelation that we'll discuss later on, that chapters 36 through 48 in the book of Revelation, uh, I'm sorry, of Ezekiel, so, yeah. Ezekiel 36 through 48 are clearly serving as kind of a, almost an outline of where John's going in, from Revelation chapters you know, 19 through 22. So, you know, the Gog and Magog and all that, it's just all following the pattern of, of Ezekiel. So there's no question about it, this, that to kind of summarize all this to say, the feasts in the book of Gospel of John are fulfilled by Jesus, Sabbath, Passover, Pentecost, and we didn't get to chapter 10, but Hanukkah. And Jesus is the fulfillment. And by the way, Hanukkah is not in the Old Testament, but it is in the Jewish literature before the time of Jesus. So yeah. the Feast of first, first Maccabees, I want to say. Yeah, in the Maccabees, that's right. Mm-hmm which are 100 to 200 years before the time of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So saying he's the fulfillment of Hanukkah, also no big deal. Makes sense. But ultimately, they're pointing to the presence of the Holy Spirit as the means to which they're fulfilled so that the water is the Spirit of God, but it comes from Jesus' side. So in the book of Revelation, it says, and from the throne of God and of the Lamb, I saw the river of the water of life coming as clear as crystal from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Ah, from Jesus' throne and the Father's, which, by the way, is the same throne, the Holy Spirit is that source of water coming from the throne as a source of life. So I think this is significant for our understanding, especially for the mission of God's people. We are called to take this out to the nations now and to make him known in the fulfillment of all that he is and all that he was. And maybe if we throw in one thought on communion here, I'd say this, you know, when we take communion, the tradition I was raised in, and I think the tradition is pretty common is that communion represents the body of Jesus. And that's why non-believers can't take it, which I don't think that's what the passage is saying in Corinthians. We'll get to that later. I don't think that's what it's saying. That it's the body of Jesus. Only Christians can take it because only they recognize what it is. And that when we take communion, we, re- we recognize that Jesus' body was shed, his body and blood were, were shed for us. And that's what we meditate on. And that's all, we, that's all we do. Whenever I teach lead communion, I say, that's great. 
absolutely, I do the words of institution. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. But then I also say, by the way, Isaiah says, Isaiah 25, that at the last days, there'll be a banquet for all peoples with choice wine. And communion reminds us of the someday that we're going to have a banquet in this glory that we're never going to hunger for. We're never going to have hunger again. So right now we take this and it's a small morsel and we're going to be hungry again. And we're going to go outside this building and wherever we're taking communion and we're going to face injustice. And communion reminds us that in a little while, someday we'll be in his glorious presence. And so we can endure. But then there's a third thing I think about communion. So number one, it's the body of Jesus. And we definitely meditate upon that. Secondly, it's about the banquet table in his eternal kingdom where we're never going to hunger again. But thirdly, it reminds us that we are called to lay down our lives for one another also. Now let's take up your cross and follow me. And they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. And greater love, there's no man than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. In other words, in Matthew 5, it says, when you're going to the altar to present your offerings, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering at the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And what I think Matthew's getting at is, don't come to the altar of communion unless you first love your brother and your neighbor as yourself. And if your brother or sister has something against you, because you haven't loved them like you should have, go and get reconciled. You know, and reconciliation takes two parties, that's fine. But do what you can and then come. Mm. So when we take communion, I'm also saying, and I am also willing to lay down my life for you mm. and you and you and everybody else too. And I think when we recognize that, now we put the significance of what John's gospel has been telling us all along. Yeah, Jesus is the glory of God. And then through the spirit, that glory of God dwells in us and equips us to go out to the world now. As the father sent me, so I send you. Mm. I told you I was going to have another sermon in five minutes. I was right? going to say that's yeah, part two. Yeah, so you know, exercise that privilege. All right, very cool. All right, so oftentimes when we talk about Jesus fulfilling things in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and specifically, as we're talking about Jesus fulfilling the feasts of Israel and those sorts of things, the institutions of Israel, is this the same thing as what's known as replacement theology, which is often argued that says, you know, Jesus replaces uh, the Old Testament, or sometimes it would be even applied to that means the church replaces Israel. Is, is this what we're talking about here? Yeah, no, not at all. Uh, by the way, I did write about this in my book, These Brothers of Mine. I have a chapter on is this replacement theology. So replacement theology is the idea that the Jewish people were unfaithful. They failed to do what God had called them to do. Jesus comes along and does it and says, you know, the heck with you guys. I'm going to start my church. And the church replaces Israel. So we are Israel and God's done with Israel. The reality is, no, the church is Israel in the sense of fulfillment. Just like Jesus is Israel in the sense of fulfillment. In other words, Jesus is Adam. He is Moses. He is and greater than them. He, he does what they were called to do. Maybe the best way to say this is to say, look, he says explicitly, I am the temple of God. So what the temple was pointing to, which obviously is the place of God's presence, Jesus says, that's me. I'm the place of God's presence. But we also go ahead and read Jesus now and say, okay, Passover all along was leading us to Jesus as the source of bread, as the bread of life. 
Pentecost was all along leading us to Jesus as the place of God's presence in terms of the Holy Spirit coming down and descending, and the, the source of revelation, the source of knowledge and wisdom and insight. Tabernacles is the place of Jesus's presence. He's the light of the world, and he's the, the water of life. As a result of that, all who believe in him are members of his family. Hmm. So he redefines family, but he doesn't redefine family like saying, you know what, bummer for you guys, you're out. He starts with you guys. Hmm. The disciples were Jewish. Mm -hmm. The early Christians were Jewish. The Christian church is a Jewish church. Mm -hmm. Paul says in the book of Romans, to the Jews first, and after that to the Greeks. As the gospel, and that's a pragmatic element to that, which we'll discuss in our book of Acts study. But as the gospel goes out, it goes out to the Jewish world. And so the answer is, no, Jesus didn't say, the heck with you Jewish people, I'm starting the church. The church is the Jewish people. Because mm -hmm. my mother and my brother and my, and my sisters are those who do the will of my father who is in heaven. I, I think it's funny, by the way. I grew up in churches that uh, strongly believe in Zionism, the idea mm -hmm. that the Jewish people as a distinct entity remain special in God's covenantal uh, viewpoint, that Jesus doesn't fulfill Israel he is part of Israel. That's true. And he establishes a new Israel, but the old Israel still matters also. And the answer is, well, the old Israel matters also, but they just, they still come to faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. their, their membership in the covenant is through Jesus. It's, there's just no other way around it. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So I, I see no way around that. But I grew up in these churches that kind of held to the Zionist ideology. And yet we still sing as children, the song, Father Abraham, mm -hmm. Father Abraham has, what is it? Father Abraham has many, many sons. sons. I am one and, of them. Uh, yeah. It's like, wait a minute. So I'm one of Father Abraham's sons. That makes us Israel. And it's like, but you don't believe that theologically. I just kind of find that ironic. Yeah. Yeah. So not, not at all. The church does not replace Israel. The church is the fulfillment of Israel, but that doesn't, it, not at the expense of Jews. There are many Jews that are Christians today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's clearly not at the expense of Jews. Yeah, absolutely. And so we don't want to at all entertain ideas of anti-Semitism or anything right. like that. It, it, so, yeah. No, but by the way, just to note, that is the sentiment of many Christians in history. Mm -hmm. um, by the second century, Christians were holding this kind of ideology that the Jews, bummer for you, you guys crucified mm -hmm. Jesus. Uh, we're done with you people. And so anti-Semitism was really strong in some of the early Christian movements. John Chrysostom was a major anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. The book of the Epistle of Barnabas was strongly anti-Semitic. And then we have Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have many other examples as well, but yeah. anti-Semitism is definitely something that the church needs to apologize for and repent for. All right. So that wraps up episode five of John. Uh, how, how many more episodes are we going to do in uh, the gospel of John? No, nah, this is it. We hopefully have an interview with Marian May Thompson mm -hmm. uh, in our next episode. Perfect. Awesome. Hope you're enjoying it, everyone. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.